The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara and welcome to a special Christmas episode of Retail Therapy, brought to you by American Express. Well, the holidays are upon us and retailers are in deep preparation mode for the Christmas shopping rush. It's going to be an unpredictable holiday season that will be full of challenges as we manage a retail reopening in Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. So what's in store for retailers? What can we expect in terms of sales? How is consumer sentiment shaping up? And what goes on behind the scenes for a retailer managing this incredibly important time of year? Joining me for some retail therapy in the Amex Lounge today is Edwina McCann, Editor-in-Chief at Vogue Australia, a position she has held since 2012. Edwina is responsible for the Vogue brand across print, digital and social media platforms. As we all know, Vogue is synonymous with style and beauty, an internationally recognised name with its publications read by millions across the globe. And I'm delighted to have Edwina with me today to chat all things fashion, how Christmas is shaping up and the fashion trends we'll be talking about this season. Edwina, welcome. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's lovely to see you. You too. And look, first of all, keen to get your thoughts on where fashion and consumer spending is going at the moment. A lot of us have been obviously in, in lockdowns and over the past 20 months, not going out as much, not going to any balls or events. Things have been pretty boring, actually. And things are starting to now, we're getting a bit of hope with roadmaps and are opening up. So now there's a uh, there's certainly brighter days ahead. And we're seeing a lot of pent-up demand now with people rushing to buy that new dress or new outfit in the hope that there might be a few Christmas parties and other events to look forward to. So what what are you hearing and seeing currently in the fashion world? Well, it's very much um, the tale of two sectors, really, because surprisingly, luxury has really boomed through this period. All these wealthy Australians all locked up at home without without travel to spend their money on, uh, many of whom may have been luxury clients of the likes of Tiffany & Co or Louis Vuitton, in London regularly or, you know, perhaps Monaco if they were on a boat in July. (laughs) They've been spending up big locally. So we've seen extraordinary sales, in particular in fine jewellery and um, luxury watches, for example, have really boomed and had fantastic years. And Ocasio has had one of its best years ever in Australia. So um, whilst I know that that is not necessarily true of mainstream retail, if, if, you know, if we're sort of, Talking about, I guess, um, you know, it's been very difficult, particularly, I think, for Australian fashion designers uh, and also more mainstream um, houses because people just simply haven't had anywhere to go. Surprisingly, for luxury, it's actually been, been quite a good period. So really what we're seeing is people that have not been able to go and travel have actually spent that money locally. And I guess, you know, that's a good news, I guess, for the Australian retail economy. Absolutely, and I think um, a lot of the, I guess a lot of the trends really surprised us. It was not what we were thinking in March 2020. We we were a bit doom and gloom about everything, but particularly the luxury sector. And I think without the um, Chinese tourism in particular, and with the uh, the Chinese expat students, many of whom were you know, really big spenders with our, mm. with our luxury partners not being here, um, I really doubted whether they would be. I guess, supplemented by the Australians who, who remained in the country. But I think they 
they really have been and and, and some. Um, however, you know, when I speak to Australian designers, I'm chair of the Australian Fashion Council, uh, that's been really, really tough. I mean, everything from obviously, you know, those who manufacture still in Australia have obviously been unable to manufacture as well. So we've got a real supply chain issue happening there, yes. um, which I think is going to take quite a while um, to, to see through to, um, to getting things really up and running back to normal. But, you know, again, um, we hosted uh, American Express which online shopping night uh, the other night and it was one of our most successful ever. People were shopping. I don't know where they're wearing it, <laughs> maybe just in the lounge room, <laughs> but people really, you know, were shopping. I think they're excited to get back out there. They're really taking advantage of special offers and a lot of retailers have been very proactive and really getting their online offering um, in order through this period. Um, really getting their databases cleaned up, using a lot of e-marketing, um, email marketing, very cleverly, I think. Um, I think some big powerhouses like um, like Amex have really got behind those retailers as well to make sure they're constantly communicating with the Australian consumer. So there's been a lot of positives as we come out of this. Um, yes. You know, I, I would say Australian fashion designers in particular, those who've made it through this period, are in better shape than they've ever been to take advantage of international clients now as well because their online offering um, is so much more sophisticated than it perhaps was going into this. Well, you raised some great points there. And look, we know that Australians spend about um, $60 billion on overseas trips. So I'm just going to come to the luxury sector for a second. What, so what are Australians buying from the luxury um, stores? Are they buying for themselves? Are they buying for their partners? Or uh, what actually do you – how are they going about – like what are they spending their money on? Well, one of, one of the stories from Cartier was um, a couple coming in and they had planned on going on a cruise and they had delayed that cruise, I think, three times. And wow. eventually they just gave up and said, oh, well, we'll buy, we'll buy one another a watch instead. So <laughs> I think there's been a lot of those sort of um, those occasional pieces, you know, I want to reward yes. myself. And we can see that really driving that fine jewellery purchase and watches in particular. But it's been true of, you know, leather goods as well. I mean, handbags have sold really well. Um, I know I know that I'm guilty of effectively buying a pair of Louis Vuitton Ugg boots during this period. <laughs> a nylon Ugg boot, but, uh, but Ugg boots nonetheless. So I think um, it's been it's been quite varied, actually. Yes. And athleisure wear, you know, we've seen a lot of clever Australian designers like Rebecca Valance and Camilla and Mark really um, refine that athleisure wear offering. Um, I think we you know brands like PE Nation have had a fabulous time mm. through this period. But Zimmerman, interestingly, because obviously they are, you know, they're a global retailer, but Australia is still their most important market. And it's been, you know, a varied story of, you know, stores will be opening now in New York doing really well, and a lot of stores are not opening in Australia. And so I think it depended on how exposed you were yes. um, and to which markets, how, how you've done. And being able to, if you were able to move around stock, which a lot of the luxuries did as well, as long as they could yeah. get the stock to a city where they were able to fulfil the, fulfil the orders. Hmm. Um, you know, I think they've fared reasonably well. It will be, there is an issue though coming with the with supply that, you know, if, even if we look at the Italian luxury sector, you know, there were long periods um, where things were just shut down. So there is um, limited stock. But oddly, I think we've seen this in luxury cars actually as well. That limited supply has only fueled 
greater demand. Yes. We've seen, we've seen it in luxury boats, I think, as well. You, you can't mm. get a boat. No. Yeah, it'll take you about five years if you want one of those Palm Beach boats <laughs> to get it. <laughs> so I think that's, um, that's probably just made consumers um, even more uh, desperate, if you like, to get their hands on that, on that item. Maybe um, just a little bit about Australian designers because they've always sort of really have done it tough unless they've sort of got a global market. I, I guess they've had everything thrown at them now, including supply chain disruption. How are they navigating their way through the current, current sort of COVID climate? I think given your role with the Australian Fashion Council, how are you seeing them reinvent themselves, I guess, through this period? So I guess the, the key to that would be um, their digital marketing and also this, uh, a lot of them who I've spoken to have really looked internationally. They're treating all customers as equal now because they may have been reliant, for example, a brand like Age, a quite, you know, had a reasonable footprint mm. um, in terms of retail in Australia. Um, obviously, a lot of that retail has been closed down. So really getting that online offering refined and also focusing on international markets, which may have been open and, um, and more up for shopping. And I guess being a, a little bit more responsive to to market conditions yes. and being able to get you know product when they could to the market where there was the most demand. So again, I think it's just been about refinement, really looking at fulfilment and where that was where that's been happening, um, and a refocusing on on the American and the UK consumer as being just as valuable, or, or you know the um, Asian consumer being just as valuable as the Australian. Um, that's basically what I've been hearing. But it, 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 for those who were sitting sort of under $2 million turnover or even under five, I think it's been really, really tough yeah. just because um, obviously, you know, a lot, of, a lot of those businesses are working on very fine margins as it is yes. and they just don't have as much flex in their ability to switch on markets and switch up, you know, wind down others. Um, so I think sadly we will... Well, coming out of this, we'll, we'll probably have fewer designers, um, but those who are left will be more resilient and, and better placed to take advantage. The Australian government has just backed the um, Australian Fashion Council to um, work on brand uh, Australian fashion. Like, yes. how do we how do we present um, internationally as as an Australian fashion brand? Um, and I'm hopeful that as we come out of this, those players who will be able to contribute to that and and really sit and benefit under that umbrella will be well placed to service those markets as well. Less reliant on big um, wholesale orders or big department stores taking them on consignment, and more um, B to C with their approach. You know, it's all about this direct B to C kind of customer journey at the moment. And I think a lot of our designers have really got that right now. And, and how complex do you think it is for an Australian designer to actually manufacture in Australia and actually, you know, um, bring that manufacturing to be much more local? And I guess there's been some, many um, brands have stuck with Australian manufacturing, but in fact, most don't now, though, do they? They actually manufacture overseas. How complex is that for an Australian designer, do you think? Well, I think this is something that we were actually um, looking at the AFC um, in association with a, with a number of designers, but also... Um, uh, a few different bodies, uh, really working on a, a better database in terms of what we have here in Australia now, which we've just improved online. There is probably more manufacturing capability than we actually thought was here. Yes. But as we, as we again start to look at um, 
you know, what we want sovereign capacity to do. I think it was quite interesting that we were unable, even if we wanted to, to manufacture, you know, even uniforms, for example, in, in really, really large quantities. In fact, one of the biggest manufacturers is actually Perth of, of uniforms. Is The owner is actually on the AFC board. And we do have limited capacity um, just in terms of scale. Yes. However, the um, machines, from what I have heard, that are now operating, um, which require more of a tech, a, a tech background to operate, yes. if you imagine more in terms of, you know, you're basically putting in a raw material and getting out a finished garment, from what I've been told, at the other end. Yes. I think that, you know, were we to cleverly invest in the right manufacturing, even if you look at the element of sustainability here mm-hmm. and the consumer demand for a more transparent um, supply chain, I think it's an area that Australia potentially could compete because there's less um, there's less uh, people required in that manufacturing right. process. So I don't think that would be true of all garments, but being able to certainly um, sample in this country, that's something the AFC you know, collected this database to try to make it easier for designers to sample here um, if they wanted to, especially if they don't have a, a large capacity themselves in terms of the sampling room. And then it is something that we we would love to see a certain amount of manufacturing return to Australia, especially when you consider that we produce, obviously, in terms of the raw goods, such fine wool, for example. Yes, we would love to see you know, that, that garment, all that value added in this country before potentially it's it's exported as a as a garment. Now, we're going to talk, move to um, discuss a little bit about mental health. And I, I guess you would agree there's a strong link between fashion and mental health, isn't there? And that new outfit or accessory can instantly change how you feel and provide the lift that so many of us need right now. What's your thoughts around the importance now coming out of lockdown and, you know, the impact of, you know, dressing um, and, you know, mental health? I think it's incredibly important. And I think people underestimate um, how much just, you know, getting up in the morning and, and getting dressed, you know, putting on your armour if you like to go to work or putting on that beautiful dress that makes you feel special and, you know, going out to lunch or, you know, the way this whole country dresses up for the Melbourne Cup to celebrate. You know, everything that we do in life that celebratory involves has a, has an important fashion element to it, yes. whether it be get, getting married or, you know, graduating or whatever. Yes. There's yes. always some fashion element. And I do think that um, that's potentially why we saw such great sales um, the other night with that online shopping night, that it, it almost is just a, a kind of um, automatic reaction for, for people to go and buy themselves something nice that they feel will make them feel better and I think once we can get out of these lockdowns it's going to be really important for us to go and you know go for a shop and get out there and and get and get dressed again I think we kind of underestimate as well the impact that um that color um that color has that our unique light in Australia really does have a lot of people um you know, we're, we're quite strong colours, I think, globally, except, of course, in, in Melbourne. <laughs> back. Um, so, it, I mean, whilst I, I understand that mental health is a very complex issue and there are so many different contributing factors and I'm not suggesting that, you know, the solution to all of those problems is just shopping in fashion, I do think mm. it does play an important role 
um, in allowing us to see ourselves and present ourselves differently and to think of ourselves differently. I think yes. so many of us have been so trapped in our own our own little world uh, through this um, with really only a screen as a link to, to anything beyond our lounge room. And mm. so fashion is that 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 link, um, you know, to one another, um, to a designer, to creativity, but also to, to good times. So I, I think we're very much looking forward to it. Interestingly, though, and I think look, when you saw the, the Met Gala the other day yes, and yes. you saw just how dressed up and, I mean, that was the hugest day of traffic you know, we've ever had, historic wow. ever. Um, and I think that was an indication of how much people are looking forward to, yes. to being able to dress up again. And we're happy to experience that vicariously through <laughs> celebrities <laughs> on the red carpet. You know, at the moment, we must. The AMAs were, were similar, which were, I think, just like two days later. So there is this yearning for getting dressed up again. But fascinatingly, there's also this um, sort of teenage grunge movement that's happening, which I would say has probably been heavily influenced by the likes of Billie Eilish, who I note you know, was dressed up in Oscar de la Renta at the Met Gala the other yes, day. Yes. Totally, you know, total transformation. But there definitely is this resurgence of, of grunge, which is which is coming as well. And I, I find that fascinating because that movement, if you like, was really born out of the the recession of the of the nineties. Yes. Um, and of course, Seattle, you know, Seattle um, garage, you know, bands as well. But it's interesting that the, the teenage reaction to a huge shift um, in, you know, in the economy or indeed as we've seen with COVID through the world is this, this almost retreat into grunge. I think it's going to be quite hard to get some of our teens out of our boots and trackies. <laughs> <and laughs> Do you think it's sort of a rebellious approach to fashion right now given what we've all been through? A, a little bit, yeah, definitely. And I think it's the... For teenagers, it's a bit of a, you know, I don't, I don't give a damn. It's, mm. it, and again, that's probably linked back to the mental health issue that we, that we talked about. I mean, if you look at where people were in the nineties, where, where that sort of movement, you know, came from, it was, a, it was Gen X saying, we don't give a damn. We, mm. you know, you can, you can all get dressed up and yes, look yes, like yes. an eighties supermodel, but we're gonna, we're gonna wear a flannel shirt sort of thing. Mm. So, yes, I think you always get that. I mean, that's the great thing about fashion. It's cyclical and for every generation there's an you know, equal and opposite, you know, reaction by the next generation to what's gone before them. So it's not surprising that, you know, grunge is coming back. It's just interesting that it's happening at the same time as we, we you know, with the runways shows on at the moment in Milan and we've seen such wonderful colour and exuberance and, you know, the fashion world saying, come out, get dressed up, <laughs> yeah, all this yes. wonderful colour and the teens are. So well, it's an interesting, interesting trend to watch. We'll be ignoring that trend for a little while, I think, to make sure it just passes. <laughs> exactly. And I guess when you think about and you reflect about the through the lockdowns, I mean, what um, and you'd be used to it when you know getting front row seats to fashion parades and uh, uh, around the world. And I guess you know in the in the sort of lockdown world where everything went virtual, it sort of made I guess the fashion access to the runway a bit more accessible. Do you think? There are some designers that will continue with that digital sort of um, availability versus uh, in live events, which which are clearly costly to run, of course. So, what's your perspective around just communication and around fashion moving forward? I, I think there will be a, a hybrid approach. Um, I mean, I really feel you know 
I've been in this job for 10 years and an editor for a few years before that. So, you know, I've had a great, I've had a great run at it. You know, and, and I think, you know, for me, it's been quite nice to be able, as much as I love being part of that creativity, it's been quite nice to be able to observe things as a whole and really have time to take in the, the shows. So I'm often, yes. I mean, the shows are often on for us, even if they're live streaming at sort of one or two in the morning. So I'll often wait and look at them the next day or the day after. Um, and to be able to kind of reflect from afar on that and say, well, how is that relevant? Which of these trends you know, how, 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 how's the Australian customer going to relate to, you know, what we're seeing on the runway? How does our reader want these yes. clothes presented has been, um, you know, I, I found that not only probably easier, but I think from a business point of view, it's been um, easier to run an always-on digital business at, at home, you know, yes. without all of that travel. And I would have said, look, you know, the luxuries in particular had started doing a lot of these travelling shows. So they would do a show in Rio de Janeiro or Marrakesh, or, mm. um, and they were not the seasonal shows, the, the Predacorte. They were actually the, the shelf collections, if you like, so Cruise or, um, or Prefall. And so there was a lot of, a lot of travel involved in that. And yeah. I would have said, I doubt that's going to come back. But there's just been a show in Venice. There's been, I mean, it yeah. looks to me like it is coming back and it's yes. coming back with a vengeance. And yeah. so, you know, the shows are on at the moment. Vogue is using local editors wherever they are, but we have offices in Paris, Milan, London, um, New York. So we don't have a lot of editors from other regions travelling to, right. to those host cities, but we're able to cover the shows regardless because of the, the strength of the network. So I do wonder what will happen um, to that when we go back. Like, will yeah. you know that the six weeks that the shows take is a is a very long time out of day to day work, especially when you consider you're not putting out a monthly magazine. You're you're running a very different type of business. You know, it, yes. like buyers have learnt to buy virtually. Although I, I'm not sure that it ever really does replace the difference. I think yes. designers have become very sophisticated in their in the means of um, you know communicating visually and the way they're filming and you know it's very very clever but I do wonder whether it it really does compensate for that you yeah. know being able to touch and look and feel. Well, maybe as you just said, it might it might end up being a hybrid model of a bit of both, and um, you sort of get the best of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I I do think that that you know big end of fashion is going to have a, an accountability, you know question regarding sustainability mm. it's you know sustainability is becoming the key really concern for a lot of very young consumers yeah and it's very hard to claim it's sustainable when 400 people are going to your show who are flying from all over the world and yeah you know you find I, I don't i'm not quite sure how we reconcile that no. well let's talk about sustainability i, I guess you know, there is a greater focus on sustainability um, and reducing textile waste, of course, in the industry. How is that shaping the priorities, do you think, for brands, designers and consumers? I think it is on all fronts and dramatically. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of upcycling now um, in terms of garment production, and I think this is an area where Australia could really lead the way when yes. we look at that really high-tech manufacturing. Like how are we addressing things like upcycling? 
because um, I think the consumer is going to care about that. We can almost leapfrog the manufacturing that was and become the manufacturing of the future potentially mm-hmm. um, in Australia. Um, certainly, I, I mean, you know, we we have um, articulated in our vote values that, you know, sustainability is a, is a key value. We have a global sustainability directory as well. Um, it's something that both business takes very seriously and reports on um, regularly the sustainable credentials or the moves of the various um, big players in terms of sustainability. I, you know, I, I think that um, if you're not addressing it and discussing it, you, you're going to, if you don't have problems already, you're going to have them in, in sort of five years in terms of yes. brand perception in particular. Um, and, and again, it's interesting because, you know, I know that um, it's very, you know, in one breath you say, oh, young, you know, Gen Zs on TikTok really, really care about sustainability. But on the other hand, you know, if said TikToker says buy this and, you know, is there a question around how sustainable what they're telling you to buy is or not? Like where's that line? Does it really, you know, how much does it um, actually um, influence purchase? Well, it's hard to it's hard to really demonstrate. However, from all the research we've done, if you ask consumers, they will tell you that it's very important to them, especially young consumers, and that they would pay more for something if they believed that it had been made more sustainably. So, I mean, whether they will or not, when it really comes to it, yes. who knows? But certainly, that is what they're saying. And and I I think all of us have learned a little bit through COVID to, you know, that less can be can be more, and I yes. wonder again how that will change. That you know, is it okay to have that you know very expensive coat that you will keep for years because mm. it's really good quality and it's made of you know Australian fine merino wool? Like, is that going to be more important than having the latest colour of the season in yes. terms of a coat? Like, is a coat something that we think of now as more precious? I do think that there is that value kind of question mm. being asked by consumers now well it becomes um, more of an investment piece doesn't it that you know you're going to have for you know in many cases a lifetime if you look absolutely. after absolutely yeah if you look after it and I, and I think that's true of um of a lot of things i think it's true in our of shoes i mean even if you look at you know nike in terms of the sustainable credentials of some of their, their runners that are completely recycled i mean it's yes. quite everyone's taking it very seriously so there must be consumer dollars in it because yeah, we know otherwise that wouldn't necessarily be happening across the board. Now, now tell me, how are things like diversity, equality and inclusion becoming a greater focus at Vogue? Your September issue, I noticed, had a stunning cover profiling an Indigenous model and designer. Tell us about the that and the growth of Indigenous fashion. Absolutely. So um, Magnolia, who was on that cover, um, had been featured in Vogue in 2019 for our 60th anniversary. And we've been looking for an excuse because she's from a um, very remote um, part of the Northern Territory. Um, and we were looking for an excuse to kind of shoot her again. And in, in the intermediate time, she'd actually had a, a baby. And so we were able to actually photograph her um, and her baby on a beach, which was absolutely beautiful. That was a global directive from Edward, who's the editor of British Vogue, um, who came up with the concept of us all shooting with a sunrise behind us globally, so every Vogue in the world featuring a sunrise to signify new beginnings. And we just thought, well, what, what is newer? What is a better way to, to communicate new beginnings than Magnolia um, and her baby? And then when we asked her 
we found out that she came, the land she comes from is known colloquially as Sunrise Country. Oh, wow. So it was all obviously just meant to be. But we, um, I mean, Vogue has very clearly articulated values, which um, are, you know, I mean, we state that we're, the, the brand um, is about um, being more inclusive um, and is about supporting diversity in all its forms. Uh, that that was publicly stated and, and signed on to and agreed to by all Vogue editors in January 2020. But prior to that, through Vogue's 60th um, and a lot of the research that we were doing looking through our archives, we it became pretty apparent to me that we were pretty poor. We had a pretty poor history in Indigenous storytelling in right. particular um, and that it wasn't enough just to have. We'd, we'd had... Um, We'd had, you know, photographed, obviously, Indigenous Australians and we'd had Indigenous models on the cover, but we hadn't been very good at the storytelling, really, beyond that. It felt a little bit sort of tokenistic, to be to be honest. And so we committed then, um, which was you know, prior to, to the Vogue values actually being, um, being articulated, that we would do a better job at Indigenous storytelling in particular, that if we were Vogue Australia, that that was an area that we had a responsibility to do better in. And so that's extended to obviously supporting um, Indigenous fashion designers. And I have to say the moment um, which Grace Lillian Lee, you know, really curated and, and put together at um, Australian Fashion Week in May was just mind-blowing, the runway show, that which was curated by Indigenous designers, modelled by Indigenous models, um, where they where they felt that they, if they couldn't find um, Indigenous expertise in a certain area, they made sure that they hired the very best and then shadowed them with young, you know, Indigenous, you know, want-to-be sort of makeup yes. artists, for example, yes. so they were always passing that on. And that was the most emotionally moving show I've ever seen and I've seen some pretty right. amazing shows in my, in my career. Yes. But this one just meant... So much more. I mean, the, the filmmaking, the cinematography, like everything was so beautifully done, the music, everything. And when you think about it, you know, as the, you know, longest living continuous, you know, um, continuous storytellers, mm. it's not really surprising that they would be so, be so apt at telling their own story. Yes. And I think that that's where in fashion we've got it wrong for so long. We kept interpreting Indigenous people or Indigenous fashion through yes. our eyes. And that runway was the first time when I saw it not being interpreted by anyone. It was, it was, they were telling their own story and yeah. they were empowered to do so. And that's why it worked. And it showed you the diversity of design within the Indigenous fashion community as well. Oh. I mean, it's an incredibly diverse range of people coming from very different points of view. And again, you know, I think white Australia has been, you know, always so quick to sort of say, oh, okay, well, we get Indigenous art and then we match it with an you know, Australian fashion designer, and that's Indigenous, you know. Yeah. It's all it, we've we've taken such a quite often sort of bland approach to it, to yeah, be yeah. honest. Yeah. Without realizing that um, you know, I mean, like Indigenous, you know, rap music is a is really influential and so you can see that in some of the designers and that influence in the culture and the urban um, Indigenous designer may have, may have a very different approach to, you know, another designer from a completely different um, different nation. So uh, that runway gave you a little snapshot at just how 
complex but how uniquely diverse yes, yes. You know, Indigenous culture is. And fashion is a great way to express that, that culture and its, and its complexity and its richness um, in, in a way that you, you get it immediately. You see it and you get it. Yeah. Whereas it's quite a difficult thing to explain, I think. Other, I'm sure Indigenous Australians have found it a very difficult thing to, to explain and, and potentially have felt typecast by the fashion industry before. Yeah, amazing. It sounds like to me it was like the experience was a fusion between music, fashion and art and it sort of came together in such a magical way that it resonated for everybody that attended. It really it really did. I mean, great fashion shows always are. But they really are great storytelling, if you like. But this felt that um, I think because as well it wasn't one designer's point of view. It mm. was a group of designers with a group of models and a group of musicians. And so it was a completely different way of working potentially as well, where it was true collaboration, um, not just a dominant view being passed down and then interpreted through a number of creatives to kind of be fed up to the dominant designers, you know, for their approval or not, um, which is the way a fashion show is normally you know, normally organised. So that just the mere organisation of it felt felt really different. It was an exciting, it was a really exciting time. I really, I, I'm so pleased that we, it feels late. It feels like why weren't we doing, why, why wasn't this happening 10 years ago? But yes. it, 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 no, why wasn't it happening 20, 30 years ago? But at least it is, um, it is happening now. It really does feel like things have, have shifted. Yeah, well, it's, it's so, so nice to hear all that. I think, it, look, at, at the end of the day, as many would say, better late than never. And it sounds like there's this, significant um, opportunities that are being now presented and, um, you know, it's so lovely to see the Indigenous community rise to the top and that's, a you know, an amazing story you've just told. Now, you mentioned, Edwina, that you've been Editor-in-Chief at Vogue Australia for nearly 10 years now. That's amazing because I remember what you getting appointed. That's flown very quickly. Yeah. It's actually <laughs> 10 sure. years this year. Okay. Oh, my well, God, very congratulations. Old. Actually, that's right. Was it was it, uh, 2011, obviously? So Yeah, 2000. No, 2000. Yes, the first yes, issue yes, I put out. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So how would you reflect on your time there so far, things that you're proud of and the direction you want to take the Vogue brand into the future? Um, I think that the thing that I'm most proud of would be um, the number of jobs we've created, to to be frank. Um, Probably the very differing profile of the people who are in those jobs as Mm. well. Um, You know, the backgrounds they come from, both both educational but also, you know, their own personal backgrounds as well. It's a very, very different environment to when I first had my first job at Vogue in my 20s. Um, and And that's a good thing. Um, that's a sign of the evolution of the brand, the fact that it has also kept kept with the times. Um, I'd like to think led in, in some ways, certainly in the publishing space, but also evolved um, in the digital space. So the job creation has all been in digital jobs, but we now have more young digital journalists working for us. We, we have more editorial people than we've ever ever had but you know they they might come with a data analytics background or mm. the and my latest hire is an seo content specialist wow. um so just being able to evolve a brand as powerful as vogue with the stretch that vogue is able to to have yeah. um i would have 
you know, probably seven years ago, I would have wondered whether we could create something called Bode Codes to really talk about diversity in the tech industry and yes. you know, topics like AI, that we would be able to do that under the Vogue brand. But the Australian um, consumer and, and customer was very, is very comfortable with Vogue talking um, about those types of, of issues. Yes. I think being able to also, you know, women's magazines traditionally played a, a real role in speaking um, to and for women in Australia. And as we've seen fewer of them within the marketplace, I think Vogue has a, a responsibility again there to do that and do that do that well. And I and I think that we are committed to that. Um, and I'd like to think do a good a good job at it. But then when I start to look at things like um, you know content commerce, which is just starting to boom at the moment, so you know editorialising affiliate links marketing, for example, which is well, it's really affiliate links marketing, but it's editorial. I mean, I, I couldn't have even really imagined. You know that that direct connection with the path to purchase, yeah. um, and connecting the the brand with the the customer in that way, which is very different to putting it on a page in a magazine, you know, next to an ad. Mm. So it's um, it's been a really great time to be in media, and I, I'm sure not many people say that. It, perhaps you know if they've like grew up before the the internet, mm. like me, mm. but um, but. I, I think it's been a really exciting time and I think we've all changed, certainly at Vogue, I think we've changed for the better. Yes. I mean, the 20-year-olds, I think we have 75% of our um, of our staff are under the age of 32 wow. in editorial, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. So being lucky enough to actually work in and around young people like that yes. is a real privilege and I've got to say there a lot smarter than me <laughs> and better at it. You can really only bring to it experience, I think. Um, and embracing change has been the other the other positive of it as well. Looking yeah. for the, you know, constantly looking for the opportunity rather than um, lamenting, you know, the areas of decline has been, I think, the, the best thing. And being being in, I mean, here the Condé Nast titles are, are published by News and News is good at harnessing that entrepreneurial spirit. They'll really let mm. you be, take an entrepreneurial approach to, you know, to campaign. They're, they're a great campaigning, uh, you know, company. And yes. so when you take something like Vogue Codes and you present it as a campaign, this is its purpose, this is what we're trying to do, or indeed American Express, no Vogue American Express fashion is not out. Right? That's, a, that's really a campaign to help retail. That's what it was started as. News, they get that. They go, yeah, 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 this, yeah. Is, this is good. It's good for retail. It's good for the Australian economy. Let's all get behind it. So, uh, being able to have that power and reach of the mm. of the broader company backing some of the big ideas has been um, has been a privilege for me, but also probably something that has helped us propel ourselves forward and and given us enough scale to take advantage of. Um, of new ideas. Now, look, we're leading up, as you know, to the all-important Christmas period, and I'd be very keen. I've got a, a couple of questions to ask you, just some some quick responses from you. So uh, what's a perfect Christmas day look like for you? A swim on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> so no, no cooking at weddings. No, I don't want to do any cooking at all. I think, um, I think it must have been last Christmas, didn't we? We had a limit of 20 or something, and I think I was, right. like, under it by one with all my extended family on two tables. And I remember thinking, oh, 
maybe restrictions it's were good. <laughs> once, you get, once you're getting up to those numbers, maybe you want the restrictions. Um, but, yeah, as women, um, my husband loves to cook and we've got a gazillion children so and various cousins and everything. So, yeah, having everybody home for Christmas is Lovely, or or with family, right? Thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, we're all sort of most of us have been wearing, you know, we'd say Zoom dressing, half dressing, dressing only for our tops, whilst the bottoms are in tracksuit bottoms or shorts. What's the what's your quick sort of um tips for dressing for Christmas, um, or just for the summer holidays? I guess um, what what are the sort of the essentials? I think it's going to be all about the dress for women. I think the dress is is the item of the season just because we just simply haven't, um, you know, haven't worn them for so long. But also, I mean, I even though this morning getting we've lost we've lost that ability to match the bottom with the top. Yeah. So rather, <laughs> so rather, rather than put ourselves in a potentially embarrassing situation, I would just recommend buying a great dress and then you can just zip it up. A little bit harder for men, of course. <laughs> so I think I, I look I do I think um there's a real sort of casualization in in men's fashion. We're seeing beautiful fabrications come through a lot of a lot of really natural fibers. I yeah, think linen thing and as cotton. well. Linens yeah. and cottons and, and we sure we see that every summer to some extent. But I do think again it comes back to this value proposition that people are going to want that really you know, beautiful shirt and they'll be willing to treat themselves this Christmas. I actually think we're going to have a good, a really good, strong Christmas. I think the, I think if there are headwinds, they're, okay, once we're open and the travelling starts, yeah. what happens then? <laughs> Where are people spending their money? But I think the lead up to Christmas is going to be really strong. And maybe uh, you message the Melburnians who may not want to take on the idea of lots of colour this Christmas. What, what's your message to them? <laughs> Well, I think they're going to have to start with the cup, which I, we, I had, you know, chats with the BRC. Nobody's quite sure we'll be on track or off track or whatever. But, you know, last time the Melbourne Cup was that real coming out moment of, from Melbourne, right, for Melbourne out of, yes. out of that long lockdown. So I think we're going to see a similar thing again. Obviously, um, it'll be a little early, I think, for, for Melbourne to be completely, um, you know, without restrictions. But... Melbournians love getting dressed up, like, and they, they love it. And they love a picnic. I mean, they are the world. Cha- I mean, Sydney's giving them up to their money right now, but they are. That's got more about margaritas, I think, than than picnics. But Melbournians, I think, are really great at that at picnics. So I think you can see people getting dressed up. I hope. I hope we will, because if if there's a city in the world that really needs that lift and that pick me up, it is it is Melbourne. Yes. So I'm hopeful that. A, you know, a great summer dress and some, you know, really good quality, beautiful linen shorts and a shirt will do the trick. Absolutely. Uh, some clear advice there from Edwina. And <laughs> just lastly, uh, any any gift? What's the, what's the gift that's on the top of your Christmas wish list this year? I've, I've kind of probably got a few, to be honest. I, I, I'm I obsessed, you know, with the Hermes sort of, eight, you know, H sandals that I know they, they become impossible. They sell out in Australia all the time. They're really hard to get your hands on. But, you know, but I seriously feel like I need these shoes in every single colour because you can wear them <laughs> all through summer. You can, They look dressed up enough to get away with, but you can also wear them to the beach um, and you can, you know, even wear them into the office and you still look respectable. So if I get another pair of those, I'd be pretty, I'd be pretty happy, which is probably not the most exciting thing but, uh, since I've got a few already, but they're the most used item, I'd say, in my wardrobe. 
Fantastic. It sounds like to me your husband knows you've got expensive taste and he's um, working hard to give you everything you want. But you, you, mind you, I shouldn't say that you're buying probably what you want yourself. So um, I didn't mean it that way, but more as a, as a gift. So, Edwin McCann, thank you so much for joining us today on Retail Therapy. Congratulations on all your success at Vogue Australia. All the best for the future. And most of all, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Paul. Thank you for having me. Joining me for a quick fireside chat is Tristan Harris, co-CEO at Harris Farm Markets, a family-owned fresh food grocer with 26 stores across Sydney and New South Wales and home to around 3,000 employees. During the pandemic, you worked closely with American Express to expand your online business, partnering with them to develop co-branded delivery boxes and participating in Amex offers. Why is it so important that your customers know and are aware that they can use their Amex card with Harris Farm? Well, Paul, I don't know about you, but I use my Amex card whenever I can. Absolutely, every given opportunity, I love collecting the points. I like all of the benefits that I get from using my Amex card. And so if your customers don't know that you're offering them a service, then you're going to get into, you know, well, you're just not going to get the kudos that you deserve. And so we are offering our, our customers a service by, you know, allowing them to use American Express. And, uh, and so we want to do everything we can to make sure that they understand. Tristan, thanks so much for joining us and all the best for the future. Thanks, Paul.